0: So, Meriwether Lewis and Clark. I never remember Clark's name. Meriwether is such a memorable name, isn't it? Uh, Seen here, pictured in their um, Fresno Pacific College yearbook (laughs) picture, led the uh, expedition commissioned by President Thomas Jefferson to find a westward passage from the east to the Pacific Ocean. And these intrepid explorers used all of their skills of reason, all of their experience, all of their training, everything uh, that they had in their possession, including the full resources of the US government behind them to find this western passage. And they constructed this plan that they knew with absolute certainty that if they could make their way to the Missouri River, they would just plop their canoes in the Missouri River, kick their feet up, and ride the river all the way to the Pacific Ocean. And things were all going according to plan until one day, with their feet kicked up on the canoes, they bumped into the Rocky Mountains. They didn't see this coming. But now... Their foolproof plan showed them which side of that phrase they were on. And they had to adapt. I don't know about you, but pulling canoes over the Rocky Mountains doesn't seem like a fun job. But their mission to get to the Pacific Ocean didn't change, despite the fact that what was in front of them had changed. And so they had to adapt their methods of pursuing their mission. And this story for me raises the question, what do you do when the world in front of you is not what you expected and is not like the world that lays behind you? What happens when your life, your identity, your being bumps up against the rocky mountains of reality? What happens when things are going swimmingly and then the diagnosis comes? Or you get the phone call from your child who says that the church just doesn't do it for them anymore. Or maybe when you get that letter from that school that says, thanks but no thanks. Or you get laid off from the job you had worked so hard to acquire. How do you adapt your life to the circumstances that life places in front of you? More on that in a second. Today we are beginning a series called Generation to Generation. And my hope in this series is that we will explore in depth and in greater detail our mission as a congregation, which is to connect the generations to Jesus and to each other. And so made up, uh, our community is made up of multiple generations, and we have noticed that we are missing a few generations in, in terms of presence and participation and contribution and life in our community. And so we want to explore, what does it look like for a community of faith to pass down its faith to the next generation, to be oriented towards and for the next generation? And what would it look like for that next generation to say, this church is for me. And so we're going to explore in depth and detail what this looks like to be a church for the next generation and to connect for every generation to connect to Jesus and to each other and to make sure that we're on the same page as we move forward. Here's what a generation is. This is a very simple definition of generation to make sure we're all on the same page. A group of people who experience a common historical period a group of people born between a certain set of dates who are defined and marked by a set of particular historical and sociological circumstances. That's what defines a generation. But we know that alive right now are multiple generations. In fact, there are more generations alive occupying planet Earth right now than at any other point in human history. If you're at our congregational meeting Uh, two Sundays ago, I need to clarify because I said there were five generations alive, and I was wrong. There are five generations who currently occupy the workforce, but there are actually six generations alive right now who occupy the planet. So we have the builders, the boomers, Gen X, Millennials, Gen Z, and Alpha. Started, started back over from the top. And I'll, t- I'll talk a little bit more about each of them next week. But the thing about each of these six different generations is each generation is shaped by a particular set of historical circumstances, and some of these generational differences create gaps. They, they, help, they shape the way that we perceive things, and those often come into conflict uh, in, in communities like this where uh, we can begin to understand this sort of infamous quote by George Orwell, who says this, every generation imagines itself to be more intelligent than the one that went before it, and wiser than the one that comes after it. (laughs) And so how do we come alongside one another? How do we honor and learn from and accompany multiple generations all at the same time. What well, begins, first and foremost, by recognizing that the God of the Christian story, the God who created and redeems and sustains all things, is, in fact, a multi-generational God. The God of the scriptures reveals God's self in each generation for the next generation. God uses each generation as a mechanism by which to transmit God's mission and God's plan to rescue, redeem, restore, and revitalize human life and the planet and the, all of the cosmos. And so we're going to look at, at who this multi-generational God is and, and what that means for us by looking at a story from the first part of your Bible, which we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. And in this first part of the Bible is a famous story about someone named Moses. So depending on your generational cohort, some of you will imagine Moses as Charlton Heston. <laughs> Others of you will imagine Moses as Christian Baal. Exodus, Gods, and Kings, that came out a couple of years ago, just in case you were wondering where that comes from. But this is a story of Moses. And we pick up the story after Moses, who, has, who is uh, one of the members of God's family, who, through a set of circumstances, uh, ends up being raised in the Egyptian palace as part of Pharaoh's family. And over time comes to a realization of his true identity, which leads to a conflict that sends him out into the wilderness. And he spends a a significant portion of his life in the wilderness, confused about who he is and what he's here to do and what life in the world is even about. And so we pick up the story of Moses here. This is a a well-known story of Moses at the burning bush. And I want us to to look in a little more detail at this. So Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. We read, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that through the bush, or that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, "Uh, here I am. Now, this is sort of a strange scenario here, let's be honest. It's it's one that if you have grown up in the church, it's a familiar and well-known story. But for that reason, we forget how strange this is. Moses, tending sheep in a barren, desolate place. finds himself at the foot of the mountain of God. And he's standing there, and he sees in front of him a bush that's on fire. Now, perhaps this is a a common sight in the wilderness, to see a singular bush ablaze. But then Moses is standing there long enough to realize that the natural progression of events is actually not happening. What should be happening is this bush should be combusting and breaking down and turning into ash. But it stays aflame. The wood continues to burn but without turning to ash. And Moses is like This is weird. <laughs> I need to like zoom in on this. I need to come over closer and see what's going on here. And God notices Moses' curiosity. And he says, "Moses, Moses is like Here I am. And then God reveals God's self. God speaks to Moses in a profound way. And God identifies himself. God essentially pulls out his driver's license. Says, hey, 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 hey. I know this is kind of a strange thing, but let me know. Or I, I just want you to know that this is this. Is this. Like I am what you're seeing is this thing that you've heard about. And God says, I am the God of your father, and I'm the God of Abraham, and I'm the God of Isaac, and I'm the God of Jacob. In this new sort of revelation, this new experience, this this fresh encounter of God's identity, God immediately links it back to who God has, the ways that God has shown up to God's people historically. It's a fresh encounter, but in a familiar way that God shows up. Now, this doesn't quite land on us. I am the God of your father and your father's fathers and the forefathers and all of that. It, this, it doesn't quite land on us in the same way with the same sort of emotional like, whoa. I need to take off my shoes right now sort of way. And especially if, if you're not a follower of Jesus or, or maybe the way that you've been uh, affiliated with the church or the, or the things that you have learned about the church over time makes you kind of like, this is actually more of a turnoff for God to identify God's self with the historical sort of story of God's people. Maybe you feel a little bit uh, like this quip uh, from sort of the king of the atheists, Richard Dawkins, who in his reflection on the Old Testament, which we could kind of reflect on Christian history in a similar way, he writes this, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Showing his cards already. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I don't know about you, but after reading that, I just want to give him a hug. (laughs) Are you... Are you okay? Do you need a friend? <laughs> I can make some recommendations. but Now, if, if you read this and you're like, that's, that's a little offensive, then I would say maybe the invitation is to be a, a little more honest about your experience with reading the Old Testament and maybe a little more empathetic about your reading of Christian history and how people might come to this feeling when encountering something like Christian tradition or the history of the church or the history of God's people. But I would say on the flip side, if if this is how you identify, if this is how you evaluate the Christian story and Christian history and the Christian God, then I would just invite you to, to say, how did you come across those values by which you critique Christian faith? These things, misogyny, ethnic cleansing, racism, homophobia, infanticide, genocide, these are all staple elements of the ancient world that without the impact and influence of Christianity, you might, these might still be in the air that we breathe. But it is because the influence of Christianity and the God of Christian tradition that we even have categories by which to critique these things and see them as bad. So evaluate that, too, as you consider these things. But what's happening here in in this moment is that God is revealing who God is to Moses in a new way. God hasn't ever done anything like this. Like, if you start in Genesis 1, there's not another burning bush. Like, God doesn't continue to say, oh, oh burning bush, I know what's happening right now. This is God showing up on the scene. Nobody has ever encountered God like this, in this way, before. So, and if, if you're like, what? Uh, eh, I don't know. Let's turn the page, a couple pages, Exodus chapter 6. God says to Moses... I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, I did not make myself fully known to them. This is something new. This is something fresh, that a new generation glimpses God in a way that previous generations had not yet seen. And now, we get to experience in the church today... In and through Jesus, we get the full and complete picture of who God is because of Jesus. But each generation glimpses and perceives who Jesus is in different and unique ways based on their historical circumstances. And there's going to be more on that next week, so I hope you come back. But there is something new happening here. And so perhaps we could say it like this. God's mission stays the same in every generation. God is looking for cooperative friends. God is looking for people to carry out God's mission. But God's methods change for each generation. God shows up here in a new way to Moses, in a way that Moses, it piques Moses' curiosity. Moses leans in because this is something that is different than maybe what he has come to expect from the God of the Bible. God's mission stays the same, but God's methods change. And it is the task of the church to discern God's unchanging mission, but then to be in relationship and encounter every generation in a unique culture and historical circumstance in a way to discern how to best adapt and apply that tradition in and for a new day. The composer Gustav Mahler puts it this way. He says that tradition does not mean to look after the ash, but to keep the flame alive. Tradition does not mean to look after the ash, to say that this thing was once on fire, but it, it consumed it. The fire has left and it has burned out. But how do we remake, how do we reparticulate this ash and put it back together so that it might catch flame again? No, tradition says how it trains our eyes and our hearts to see and to respond to where the flame of God's Spirit and God's presence is moving and active in new and fresh ways for this generation in ways that connect to what God has always been doing in every generation. And so the encouragement, my pastoral hug around you is to say, God doesn't change. So you don't have to be afraid of change. God does not change, so you don't need to fear it. It's the same God speaking, acting, moving, showing up in new forms that new generations can lean into and respect and be curious about. So how do we change? What's the invitation to change? What is changing? many of you are asking. Well, there's lots of things changing in our world. There's lots of things changing in your life. Many things are changing, and we all encounter and experience and adapt to change in various ways that are shaped by our temperament and psychology and and theology and all sorts of things that impact us. But there's there's a clue hidden, buried in this passage, of one potential invitation to adapt and to change for many of us. And right in verse 1 of chapter 3, there's this line that we've just quickly walked past. But it's increasingly given me an imagination for what's possible. And it's this line right here. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law the priest of Midian. (laughs) You went to seminary for that? (laughs) Wow. Here's what's happening. Moses' father-in-law, a priest, a, a follower of God, somebody who has given his life who's had an encounter with God and whose life has been shaped as a result, receives in Moses into his family and gives this runaway fugitive a new job. This person who lacked an identity, he gives him one. He gives him a task, a vocation. And and Jethro creates the conditions for Moses to encounter God in the way that Jethro himself may have done it, but just in a different form. You see, if, if, if Jethro hadn't equipped or given some of his responsibilities and tasks over to Moses, this may not have happened. And so Jethro creates the conditions for Moses to encounter Yahweh. And I think sometimes we quickly skip over things like this because we, when we read this story, we want to align ourselves with Moses. Our, our cultural frame of reference is to put, always put ourselves as the primary subject of the story. But what about the supporting characters who make these encounters possible? I think we have overinflated the experience of Moses and neglected the experience of Jethro. I think most of the time, most of us have equated the, the lifespan of Christian faith with a string of burning bush moments. And we haven't been given a proper invitation to accept the transition to become Jethro's, to turn around and create the experience for the next generation to encounter the burning bush for themselves, and then to come alongside with wisdom and experience and structure and support and questions that make better questions to say, here is what you need to do. Have you thought about this? I don't know. The circumstances are different, but my experience says this. I have some resources, let me fund it. I have some insight, let me tweak your, the phrasing here. Let me support you with my time. You, you need some of this, I have some of that. And so the question that Jethro raises for us is who is the Moses to your Jethro? Is there somebody in the next generation that you are investing yourself in? Maybe it's your children. Maybe it's your grandchildren, or maybe it's somebody else's children or grandchildren. Are you investing in in somebody else's children or grandchildren in a way that you wish somebody would have invested in your children or grandchildren? Who is the Moses to your Jethro? I I have had numerous people in my life who have come up to me and and said, You, I want to spend time with you. I want to impart some of what I have and give it to you and see what you do with it. Because you have something that I don't have, and I have something that you don't have. So, what happens when we bring these things together in this mentoring sort of capacity? What's possible? Who is the Moses to your Jethro? But this invitation also works the other way around. Some of us need this Moses encounter. Some of us need to encounter God in a new way. Some of us need to have a trajectory-shifting encounter with God. And so the question for you is, who is the Jethro to your Moses? Who is ahead of you? Who can clear the way for you? Who can give you insight Who can tell you all of the ways that they have failed as a parent or a grandparent to help you learn from their mistakes? Or who is somebody who you can ask questions to? What does this mean? Or how does this, what have people over time said about this thing? Or is this thing that I think is the most important thing, is it the most important thing in the scope of a lifespan? So, who for you, if you need an encounter with God, who is the Jethro to your Moses? And what could happen for you if you accepted this invitation in in either direction? If you said, you know what, I've been trying to continue to manufacture this Moses experience and, and maybe my burning bush moment becomes the moment when I accept this invitation to become Jethro and look back and invest in the Moses coming up. Or what would be possible for you if you said, you know what, I've been trying to figure this out on my own, and I can't do it. The world is way too complicated and complex, and I need help from somebody who sees things differently than me, who values things differently than me, who's maybe my parents' or grandparents' generation, but is way easier for me to talk to because they're not my parents or my grandparents. And what if? What if North Fresno Church... What if we became a Jethro church to a Moses generation? What if we as a church positioned ourselves at the ready, looking forward at a generation who says, I have no curiosity at all about the way that you all do church? What if we said, the problem isn't with them. The problem is that we are trying to keep the ashes going. And what if we became, what if we became a Jethro church for a Moses generation? What sort of story might be told over the next 50 years about us? What sort of liberation might people experience if we were to do this? Because as the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon once put it, every generation needs regeneration. And sometimes that regeneration looks like Moses, and sometimes... regeneration looks like us becoming jethro's so may we be the people who point always and only and ever to the source of that regeneration which is the life and the death and the resurrection and the presence and power of jesus among us now this god who never changes this meal never changes the invitation to grace never changes, but sometimes the ingredients that make up the bread, they change. Sometimes what we serve in the chalice, it changes, but God does not change, and so you can accept the invitation to this table where change can happen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and handed over to be crucified, he gathered his friends around him, and he took a loaf of bread and he gave thanks for it and he blessed it and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. And in the same way, he took a cup of the fruit of the vine and he blessed it and he gave thanks for it and he poured it out. And he said, this, my brothers and sisters, this is the cup of the new covenant, something new, but something old. And every time you drink this cup, you remember my death until I come again. This cup is shed for the forgiveness of sins. And every time you take this bread and you drink this cup, you accept the invitation to come and be changed by grace through faith. So what is the invitation that you need to accept as you come to this table today? God, we ask that through these ordinary elements and through our ordinary lives that you would do your gracious work of renewing, restoring, redeeming, and reviving each one of us in ways that are fit to each one of us. God, we pray that In this simple meal, you would in profound ways meet us, the deepest needs and the deepest hungers of our lives, that you would fill them and nourish us and satisfy us in ways that go, go beyond anything in this world. God, I ask for fresh wind, for fresh power, for fresh revelation, for fresh life to be experienced today in this moment through this meal. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In front of you or near you is this communion set. And I will invite you now to take the top layer of cellophane, the clear and purple tab, and pull that back to reveal the communion wafer. Now as you do this, my sisters and brothers, may you know that this is the body of Christ given for you. Take and eat. Now you can peel back the purple aluminum to reveal the grape juice. This meal has the power to do exactly this, to peel back the layers. To peel back the layers of who God is and who God has created you to be. This is the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins given for you. Take and drink. So God we thank you for this meal. We thank you for your grace that meets us in ordinary ways and transforms us into ordinary extraordinary 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 vehicles of your grace. God we pray that you would do something new in the way that you have always done it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.